The series that we're just coming towards the end of is a series on prayer. And I guess most of us have got different, we'll, we'll all have some kind of an idea about prayer. Uh, we've all probably thought about prayer at some point in our lives. What is prayer all about? We've probably looked at the issue of prayer, we've probably thought about it, we might even have prayed. Uh, very often people pray that kind of throw out in an emergency kind of prayer. Uh, I guess one, what we're looking at here is what is prayer in terms of relationship. We've got a group of men who are disciples of Jesus, and Jesus is praying. They watch him pray, uh, and they say to him, teach us to pray. That's what they want. They want to learn. They want to understand what does it mean to pray. Uh, and so for us, if we're believers in Jesus, I think it's a great starting point, isn't it? Prayer isn't something that just sort of pings into place. It's something to develop. It's something to think about. It's something to learn. Uh, and just like the disciples, we can say, teach us to pray. And what Jesus does really is he creates for them uh, a model of prayer, which most of us will know as the Lord's Prayer. And it's not, this is the only way to pray. It's a framework. It's a way of describing what prayer is and what the elements of prayer when we recognize that we are in relationship with the God of heaven and earth. And so for us, as we understand, as we think about how do I learn to pray, what are the elements that make up prayer to God? And of course, we all use the language that we normally use. It, that's one of the great things about prayer. It's, it's about being real. It's about being truly us. It's about opening our hearts in words, in our mind, or out uh, vocally before God. And it starts by saying, our Father who is in heaven. And that is a massive contrast. The idea of a father in heaven is a remarkable thing. Uh, your, hallowed be your name. That's a great idea, isn't it? I, one of the th aspects of prayer is I want to make your name holy in my life. I want to think of you as somebody who's great and majestic and incredible, and yet at the same time I can call you Father. Hallowed be your name. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who sins against us, which was what we looked at last week. That massive issue which is all about relationship. That if we are in relationship with God, the only way that we can be in relationship with God is because He has forgiven us. It's because we are in relationship, because the kind of person that we by nature are, which is a, a, a rebel against God, has been forgiven, and then we are in relationship with God. And then he says, because you have been forgiven... And because you can continue with confidence to come and to remind yourself of the ongoing forgiveness of God, then in the same way express that in forgiveness towards each other. And then we go on to, I think, one of the most challenging and most difficult phrases initially, and lead us not into temptation. That's, a, that's kind of, that is wacky, isn't it? That's just strange for us to say on face value. We're saying that we're in relationship with God. We're saying that we are loved by Him. And then we're praying, bizarrely, lead us not into temptation. Why would God 
lead us into temptation. Why would he do that? Why would a God who loves us lead us into temptation? And so I think we've got to just pause and think about this. Why would God lead us into a temptation? Because that's what it seems to be saying. And why should we pray against God leading us into temptation? It's a massive issue for us. And yet it's essential for us to understand because it is part of the process of our ongoing relationship with Him. It gets right to the heart of our issue. It gets to the very core of the challenge of what we are as human beings. And it's this, that we are constantly, day by day, faced by either huge forks in the road or a continuous series of minor forks in the road. We are constantly faced with issues. We are constantly faced with challenges. That We are constantly faced with decisions to make. And the question is, when faced with those decisions, how are we going to respond? How do we address that? How do we decide what to do? Some of you will be huge fans. Some of you won't have a clue what I'm on about, so I'll explain a little bit. I've kind of got halfway through series one, and I really tried, and, and some of you will be thinking, what? only halfway through series one, what's up with you? When I say Breaking Bad, some of you will think, how did you only get halfway through series one and give up? Others will be thinking, don't know even how you started it. But let me give you this, and others will say, what's Breaking Bad? Um, It's a series, and and it's a a fantastic series in terms of its, he says, having only got through halfway series one. It's a fantastic question. It's the story of a guy called Walter White, and he's been diagnosed with a a terminal illness which is going to kill him within two years. He faces a massive challenge. He's a chemistry teacher. He's one of those ordinary Joes, really. He's an ordinary guy going through life, and then he's suddenly faced with this massive issue in life. It is, it is brought to even more poignancy because he looks into the future, and he's faced with a problem that his insurance isn't big enough, and a dependent son... Uh, with his own challenges, and a wife, set in New Mexico. One of those kind of, you know, the kind of hot and kind of, (laughs) the the constant place where America always seems to portray the challenges of life. If you want a challenge of life, we'll set in, in New Mexico. Somebody's written the synopsis in this way, which I think brings it to the point. The series tracks the impact of a fatal diagnosis on a regular, hard-working man and explores how a fatal diagnosis affects his morality and transforms him into a major player of the drug trade. That is a fantastic foundation. We've got Walter White sat at a fork in the road He knows how to make the purest crack cocaine that you could ever imagine. Is that what it is? Crystal meth? Whatever it is, it's something that you shouldn't make. (laughs) (laughs) And he knows how to do it really well. And he's faced with a junction in the road. I see into the future a really fearful issue. My wife and my child are in dire straits. They've got a massive problem ahead of them. 
that they're going to be out on their ear, and I have the ability to make this, this drug, which is going to bring in shed loads of money, and I'm going to be able to provide for them when I am gone. That is a massive moral issue. And he stands right at the fork in the road. What is going to inform him? What is going to make the decisions in his mind as to whether to go down that line or whether to go down another line? A line which we would all, all say in the kind of cold light of day, you don't want to do that because that only ends in disaster. It ends up in a whole load of really amusing scenes in the series, but it ends up in the cold light of day, it ends up in disaster, doesn't it? It ends up in suffering for far more people on the basis of your desire to try to save two people. It brings pain and horror and suffering into the world because you are determined to save just two. And yet he is faced with that dilemma because that's what life is like. It's a series of crossroads. It's moments of choice. It's decisions that we make. Does the Lord's Prayer speak into those decisions? Does it challenge us? Does it speak to us? Is prayer part of that decision-making process? That's the question that we face. And that is at the root, I would suggest, of this very phrase. Lead us not into temptation. We're going to use an excerpt from the uh, life of God's people from Deuteronomy. And uh, it's great that we can go back because we face, we see in this situation God's people at the point of a decision in life. Let's go back and let's give a little bit of a, maybe a little bit of an overview. You might wonder, well, why are we looking at this issue of the Israelites from thousands and thousands of years ago? One of the ways, at least one of the ways that you can think about the Bible is it as a constant way of describing the responses, the actions of God's people throughout history from the very beginning until the end of the New Testament. It is tracing the story of God's people and it is more than that, it is tracing the story of the hand of God upon his people. That's one of the ways that you can think about how to piece together the Bible. What we've got is we've got God's people. They're now, we saw them a couple of weeks ago. They've been remarkably, incredibly saved from slavery. And they're in the, they're in the desert now. They were in Egypt. They were slaves. We know they're slaves because of the description. They were, they were required to build brick, to make bricks. Uh, and the, the pressure that was being brought on them, as every slavery situation uh, across time, across history, always reflects this. To do more than what is reasonable with less than what is necessary. And you have no freedom to say no. That's one of the aspects of slavery. Do more than what you could possibly expect with less than what is necessary, and you have no freedom but to do it. You make more bricks. We're going to not give you enough straw. We're not going to give you enough mud, and you've got to deliver. And the punishment for not delivering was constant oppression. 
people losing their lives, people being beaten. They're freed from that, God frees them from that, and they end up traveling around the desert, essentially. And the, the promise that He has made them is, don't worry, <laughs> I'm going to release you from this, and I am going to give you a land. What kind of land do you need in a desert area? It's quite simple, really, isn't it? You need a land which is going to give you the provision. You need a land with water. You need a land where you can plant crops. And God says, you're going to be, end, you're going to be brought out of this, but I'm going to give you a land. This little section is Moses reflecting back on what it was like when they were about to enter into the land that God had promised them. They looked at this land. They came to the very border of this land. And really the story, God's people laying out, the, the, God's people in this moment of tension, the drama that unfolds during this text is quite simply this. The moment of choice and the moment of tension for the people of God listening to God's voice through Moses compared to their own decisions and what they perceived. That's the, there's the fork in the road. Are we going to listen to what God is calling us to do? Do we trust Him or do we trust what we assess the situation to be? There we faced it. What do we see? What we already know is that they have repeatedly experienced God's hand of care. Repeatedly. They've experienced, in dramatic ways, God's hand of care. I guess that many of us here would be able to relate to that. We would be able to say that when I look back over time, when I look back at a whole series of different situations, I can honestly say when I look back, I have known that God has had His hand on me. It's a way of looking, isn't it? It's a way of seeing things. It's a way of understanding. I know that, I know that God has been with me. It's not kind of, you know, kind of superstitious, spooky stuff. It's an understanding of the intervention of God in the real events of this world day by day. You can say God has been with me. And yet I constantly, I continue to be faced by decisions in spite of the fact that God has been with me in the, in the, in the past. I still am faced with decisions that I'm filled with fear regarding. Chapter verse 20 of our reading says this. This is Mo Moses speaking. He says, You've reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord God has given you the land. Go and take possession of it, as the Lord, the God of your ancestor, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. <laughs> That's all you need to do. Just go and take the land. It's the land that you need, because after all, you're, you're in a desert. You need to settle Here's the land that God's given you. Just go and take that land. There's the promise of God. What's the people's response? Verse 22. All of you came back and said, let's send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and towns we will come to. <laughs> I love that. I think it's brilliant. It seems so reasonable, doesn't it? It just seems such an appropriate way to move forward. What they're told to do is just go and do it. And they say, well, let, let's just see, shall we? Let's just pause for a moment. 
Let's just have a look. Let's just see what kind of towns there are. Let's plan a route. Let's decide what to do. But underneath it all, underneath that simple, what seems such a reasonable statement, is the underlying, hang on a sec, let's just, let's just think about this. Because after all, that, 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 looks like, that looks like a really big task. How big a task was it for you to come out of Egypt? How big a task was it for you to be freed from slavery under Pharaoh, the greatest empire that the world had seen to that point in history? How big a challenge was that? How difficult was it? Are we going to look and see and have confidence in that, or are we going to just want to have a look? Let's have a quick look. What was the response of that quick look? Verse 27. I think, I think the way the narrator just opens this up is absolutely fantastic. It just kind of points to the way we behave. You grumbled in your tents. That's the problem. When you were faced with this issue, you kind of dispersed, you separated off from each other, you sat in little huddles and you grumbled in your tents. The Lord hates us. So he's brought us up out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. What a crazy way of looking at things. What a ridiculous way of looking at things. How much did it take for you to be freed from Egypt? And yet your response is, God hates us. He's taken us out of that just to be destroyed by these. It's ridiculous, but... Let me just pause. It's so easy, isn't it, for us to say it's ridiculous. It's so easy for us to look from a distance, to know the whole story, and yet what we actually see, I think, is precisely how our hearts and our emotions and our, in, our inbuilt responses work. We have a perspective which looks on the things that surround us as being much bigger than the God who is over us. That's the challenge that we have. The things that surround us are bigger than the God that is over us. I want to pause just for one moment and just take a real quick sidebar and say, in the light of the news that we shared last Tuesday about the future of not being able to be in here, let me just reiterate that simple truth. The things that surround us can seem much bigger than the God who is over us. And the task of our journey is to remind ourselves that the God who is over us is bigger than all the things that surround us. Sidebar over. Let's get back to this. The response of the people is, we're going to grumble in our tents. We're going to get down into little groups. We're going to say this is really too big. And then Moses intervenes again in verse 29, and he says, Then I said to you, do not be afraid. 
do not be, sorry, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. It wasn't like God fought for them without them seeing it. The way they left Egypt was so incredible, so amazing, so dramatic, that it was so spread out before them that the victory was won through God. And yet here they are, they are terrified because of the need to now take the next step forward. I think that raises two questions. They've left Egypt and they've ended up on the very border of the land that God has given them. I want to ask two questions. Who's led them and what is the temptation? Who has led them and what is the temptation? And how does it apply to us effectively, both of those two things? First thing that we see God who's led them. How did they end up at the border of this land? How did they end up there, having come out of Egypt? Why are they there instead of 500 miles in the opposite direction? Well, we know why, because of verse 33. He went ahead of you on your journey, in fire by night and in cloud by day, to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. You're there because God has placed you there. You're not there by accident. The reason that you are there is because God has led you there. And it's now that crossroads. Because God has led you there, are you going to decide, well, he's led me here, but that was just such a big mistake. We're going to head off in a different direction. So the journey that the people had taken was the journey that God had take them, taken them on. What does Deuteronomy, <clears throat> excuse me, what does Deuteronomy say to us today? The way that we can understand that is by understanding the transition of the Bible and one of the things that we've already read. What happens is that a physical journey in the Old Testament becomes a spiritual journey in the New Testament. That's the journey that takes place. That's why Deuteronomy is like this great big visual aid. It's this great big picture for us to understand. The kingdom that is established in the Old Testament is the kingdom that is established because finally they went into that land. And yet, what have we already prayed in the Lord's Prayer? We have already said, your kingdom come. We've already entered into the idea of the kingdom of God in the prayer that, God has, that Jesus described as a model of, for us to pray. What is the kingdom today? Are, are we today called to set out a little kind of physical space in Yorkshire, and kind of raise a flag over the top of it, and to kind of say, this is the kingdom of Jesus in Yorkshire. Is that how the kingdom works? Of course not. 
The kingdom that was physical in the Old Testament becomes a kingdom that is worked out in our hearts in the New Testament. So we're a part of the kingdom now, together, spiritually on a journey together. We are, in a king, uh, we are part of a kingdom of those who are believers in Jesus Christ in Paris this evening. Who are wondering what has gone on in this horrific event. How does the kingdom work? We are called still to live according to the kingdom in every situation that faces us. What are we to do? How does the kingdom work? How does a spiritual kingdom work opposed to a, a physical kingdom? I'm going to just pick out three from the writers of the New Testament. It's about how we live. It's about trusting God and living it out day to day. John says, be a friend. Don't imitate what is evil. Do what's good. Jesus defines what is good as a little bit of a side bar there. Just do what's good according to the law of God. That's how the kingdom is lived out now. Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let your faith, and this is a real challenge for us, let your faith not be simply a set of words, but a deep trust of faith in Jesus Christ, which means that we, we end up living differently day to day. We're a paradox. You might hate certain... The, the world that we live in might hate some of the things that the Christian faith is. But it shouldn't be because we're obnoxious, horrible people. It's really important. It should be because there's a paradox in how we live compared to some of the things which the Christian faith says. I urge you, Paul says, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. It's great when we gather together and we worship, isn't it? Singing together. Having one voice as we sing, worship to God. And Paul says, yeah, that's an aspect of worship. But your worship is to be 24-7, day in, day out, living in a way which is constantly, continually trusting and believing and having faith in Jesus and living faithfully to Him. Here's the thing. Who has led you to your current situation? I don't know all of your situations. I don't know where you are this evening. I don't know the challenges that you individually face. But if you are living a life which is trusting in Jesus, where you are is just another one of those crossroads. It's another one of those decisions where the choice is quite simply, am I going to live according to all of these demands, living righteously before God, 
living faithfully before God, or am I going to do something else? Am I going to live differently? Am I going to live according to this fork in the road where maybe that way just seems easier? Or it just seems like it's going to cause me less pain? Or it seems like it's going to be far more exciting? Or it seems as though that is bigger than the God who I worship? Let me put it in real terms in somebody's life. Let me give you a real example of somebody who faced a crossroads. You're thinking, who's this? Well, the safe thing is to use some from the Bible. His name's Peter. He's been a follower of Jesus. He has said, I am trusting in you. And then one night, the whole of his world falls apart. The one who he trusts, the one who he believes in, the one who he's got his hope in, is arrested. And he's taken and he's tried. Jesus is taken. He's bound. He's spat on. He's kicked. He's slapped. He's beaten. He's bruised. He's bleeding. He's helpless. He's hated by everybody around. And Peter, who has trusted in him, faces one of those crossroads. What is the crossroads that he faces? Am I going to, am I going to associate myself with Jesus? Or am I going to associate myself with the whole crowd that is heading off in this direction of hatred towards Jesus. That is such a massive crisis for Peter, isn't it? Where does the crisis come to a head? Does the crisis come to a head through a a whole kind of legion of Roman soldiers who have arrested him, who've grabbed hold of him, who've got him in an arm lock, who've said, I'm sure you were up on that mountainside with Jesus. Come on, slapping him about a bit. Confess, or we're going to beat you up, and you're going to be pulverized like Jesus. Was it a group of Roman soldiers? Was it a group of heavies from the temple? The temple bouncers, if you like. The kind of, the big guys who are going to grab a hold of him, who are going to kind of grab, grab a hold of him and twist his arm until he confesses, pull out his fingernails, all that jazz. Is it that? No, it's not that. The challenge comes from a servant girl. A servant girl. A little tiny voice, in a sense. In all of this hubbub of everything going on, everything kind of kicking off, Jesus in the middle of this this kangaroo court, with all of the noise of that, Peter sat next to a fire, completely ignored by everybody up to this point, just trying to see enough of Jesus to understand what's going on. And this little girl says to him, weren't you with him? I'm sure I saw you with Jesus. Mark puts it beautifully. I'm going to read the verse. While Peter was below in the courtyard, 
one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. I just think that is remarkable narration, isn't it? You can just, you can just imagine Peter. You know the way it is, a few weeks ago, Bonnie Knight sat around the fire, front, of you, front half of you is absolutely burning off, back half is still freezing. That's the way it was. Peter was just sat warming himself by the fire. And this little girl comes in, and I guess it must have been something like this. Her face stoops down and looks directly into his eyes, maybe blocking off the heat of the fire a little bit, and she looks at him closely. That, in one sense, is the most unthreatening thing that you could imagine. And then she says... You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus. And Peter's fork in the road is set. How has he ended up there? He's ended up there because Jesus has led him there. He's ended up there because God's hand has been on him to be there. But now he's facing this challenge. What is the temptation? Because I think the temptation that he faces is the same temptation that all of us face in those very issues. Is all of this surrounding me right at this moment in time bigger than God? And I look at Peter and I look at his response and I know deep in my heart I know that I would have denied Jesus as well. I would. I know that that's what I am really like, deep down. I know that by nature, I am more frightened than I am courageous. I know that by nature, I am more inclined to go with the ease of the situation and say, no, I do believe in you. And I was with that Nazarene. That's what I am like. When I'm faced with it, I know that the temptation is to believe that the power around is far more overwhelming than anything that I can do. And I also, in that, I'm saying, really, I, am ten I tend to believe that that is bigger than the power of God. It's what I'm like. That's the temptation. Walter White, breaking bad. Just as you're about to pour the acid into that plastic bucket, or the, whatever, the one that goes through the floor, that's quite amusing, isn't it? Just as you're about to mix the chemicals, do you believe that the situation for your children for your child and your wife is too big for God. Because the decision to take that into my hands is a statement that I believe that is too big for God as well and I cannot trust Him. That's what's at stake. And that is why 
It is not about God taking me by the hand and leading me to a point and saying, now I'm going to tempt you. It's about me being in situations day by day where I am tempted. What am I really praying? What is underneath this do not lead me into temptation? Underneath it all, it's this. I cannot, I cannot do what is faithful and right before you unless you change my heart. That's what's at stake. For me not to be led into temptation, for me not to succumb to temptation, for me not to believe that this is too big for God, for me not to believe it's in my hands and I'm much better at this than God, for me to do all of those things, I need my heart to be changed. That's the temptation that I face. The challenge is inside here. It's the issue that all of us face. What's happiness in life? What is true happiness in life? I found that one of the interesting little comments, which I think Barack Obama made over this past couple of days, one of the things that he said was that one of the defining markers of the Western world is the pursuit of happiness. I think that's probably right. But the reality is that the true pursuit of happiness only in this world is only ever going to lead to sorrow. Because ultimately everything that this world can deliver in terms of happiness for you and happiness for me, ultimately it's hanging by a thread and it can go like that. And even if it doesn't go like that, it will go ultimately. What is everything in this world? When I get to the end of my life and I say, well, I can't even enjoy it anymore. I, I, just, I wonder whether that must be even more painful. That the things that I've accumulated, I can no longer find joy in. And yet, if I can look at those things which God might have blessed me with and I can say, I'm thankful for that, but it's not everything. Everything is you. Eternally, everything is you. Because my life does not end when I close my eyes, finally. My life is eternal and my hope is in you. That's what we've just sung. You are my source of hope. You are my true source of happiness. And therefore, I am praying desperately by saying, lead me not into temptation. I am desperately saying, change my heart. Change my heart so that I am not fearful of that, but I'm trusting in you. Change my heart so that that doesn't seem too big. I'm believing in you instead. That's the root of the prayer. David puts it like this. In Psalm 141, he gets right down to the very issue of the problem of our heart and he says this, do not let my heart be drawn to what is evil. Isn't that amazing? Do not let my heart be drawn to what is evil. I see this right in front of me. What's my heart's response to that? Don't let my heart be drawn to that because if my heart is drawn to it, I'm going to act on it. So change my heart. Don't change my fingers or my eyes 
or my feet or my mouth or my ears or any of the other senses that is going to engage in that, in that change my heart. Because if my heart's changed, my senses won't engage in it. Do not let my, uh, do not let my heart be drawn to what is evil so that I take part in wicked deeds. Along with those who are evildoers, do not let me eat their delicacies. That's what I'm praying every time I say, lead me not into temptation. I'm basically saying, along with David, change my heart so that when those circumstances in life I am faced with, I don't even, I don't even see them as a temptation because my heart is inclined towards Jesus rather than inclined towards the moment of happiness or the moment of security perceived. Walter White, what does a heart prayer look like at that moment where you're faced with an overwhelming fear? I guess it goes something like this. Father, this is just way too big for me to deal with. I can't look after my wife and my child. I can't do that. I don't know what the future is, but help me to trust in you rather than taking it into my hands and me making it work. Help me to trust in you so that my future is not shaped by me, but shaped by you. Change my heart so that I am not tempted to do what is wrong to take care of what is good. Don't allow me to rely on evil for the sake of good. Change my heart. Don't lead me into temptation. Don't allow me to be that kind of person. I cannot do it myself. I reiterate, if I was sat in front of that fire and the servant girl sat between me and the fire and looked into my eyes and said, you were with that Nazarene, I'd have denied like Peter, like that. That's what my heart is like. And the only way that I cannot be like that is if Jesus changes my heart. We see some remarkable faith in face of huge adversity. People who have been uh, martyred, people who have been physically hurt because they believe in Jesus, who've been kicked out of their homes, who've had their, their wealth taken, their, their food taken, their family taken. And you say, how have they done that? That's amazing. Isn't that a faith amazing? because God has answered a prayer and he's worked in them. Not because they're better than, it's because God has worked. Imagine if we were changed like that.